in the letter of 1 Peter. So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin with verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. And you remember when we've talked about this word, therefore, which is in the first word in verse 13. It's like a hinge. And so we're moving from what God has done to now what God expects us to do. And Peter is going to help us here as a good pastor. So let's stand together as we read first Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers and with perishable things such as silver or gold, not not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And you may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on the reading of God's word. I'd like to try to preach through a text, and it's helpful to see it for yourself in the text as I point different things out here uh, to you. I want to begin reading this morning an excerpt from an excellent book, and probably some of you have read the book. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness, and it's written by a guy named Jerry Bridges. It's really a, um, an excellent little book on this topic that we've been talking about last week, this week, and next week, which is The Pursuit of Holiness. And this is what Jerry Bridges says in the very beginning of his book. A farmer plows his field, sows the seed, fertilizes, and cultivates all the while knowing that in the final analysis he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce rain or sunshine for growing. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on the things from God. Yet the farmer knows unless he, is dil- unless he diligently pursues his responsibility to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in a partnership with God. And he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint effort between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer must do. We can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. 
No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as assuredly, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness. He has, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. He will not do that for us. Last, last piece. We Christians greatly enjoy talking about the provision of God, how Christ defeated sin on the cross, and he gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us to our own responsibility to walk in holiness. Yet we are reluctant to face up to our responsibility. We, to, we prefer that, to leave that to God. And this is his last sentence. We pray for victory when we know we should be acting in obedience. We pray for victory when we know we should be acting in obedience. So, so Jerry Bridges, Bridges is essentially echoing the same thing that Peter is saying here in our text is that it call, it, it, the pursuit of holiness requires a, a personal effort. It requires action on our part. And that if we simply, it, this action goes beyond simply praying about what needs to change in your life, God will not do what the farmer must do. And so we have to be careful to understand that we have a part to play. And I, I want to be careful how I say this, because in no way do I want to devalue prayer, but prayer is not a magic pill. I don't know if you've noticed that in your prayers, that when you pray for something to go away, it usually doesn't just automatically go away. Just because you pray a simple prayer doesn't mean actually something would happen in terms of your personal holiness. Uh, you can't get rich, pretty, happy, or skinny by taking a pill. But see, we live in a culture that says that if you just take this pill, it's like a, the magic bean, Jack and the Beanstalk. If you would just take this pill, then you could get rich, or you could get pretty, or you could get skinny, or you could get happy. And it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way in the pursuit of holiness. You can't just offer up some simple prayer and think at the end of the prayer, suddenly you've become holiness. No, holiness is not a single event. Holiness is a, a lifelong pursuit of godly choices repeated day after day. Holiness is a, a lifelong pursuit of just making small, correct choices day after day after day. It's not a magic pill. It takes effort on our part. And so no one suddenly becomes holy. It takes a long period of time. And thankfully, we have Peter. He's a he's a good pastor. He's coming to us from this letter and he's going to help us understand some concrete actions that we need to take in terms of our pursuit of holiness. And we talked about a number of those last week and we'll talk about some more from chapter two next week. But there are several that I want to mention from our text here this morning. First, in verse 13, the first thing we see is we have to set our hope fully on Jesus. That's the first thing you have to do. You've got to, you've got to fully set your hope on Jesus. And that hope, that hope fully set on Jesus will, according to verse 15, is going to affect your conduct. It's going to lead to a holy conduct. Now, this word set or some of, some of your translations may say fix it's it's 
to the end. That's what that means in the Greek. And if you remember us talking about that a few weeks ago, it means you have to keep your eyes on the end. You, you have to set your hope fully on the end. And that end is Jesus. And so Peter's instructing this small band of congregants who are suffering under the Roman emperor that they've got to keep their eyes on the end. They have to have a vision. They have a, have a picture at the end that's going to sustain them through their current difficulties. They, they've got to prepare their minds by, by regularly recalling, by regularly remembering the, the great promises of God, the love of God, and the fact that there's an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept for them in heaven. And so as you fix your eyes on the end, as you set your hope on the end, it's going to drive your conduct today. Hope leads to holiness. A set of fixed hope on Christ will drive your conduct today. And there's a number of ways that this theme is repeated in the New Testament particularly, but maybe the ones we're most familiar with comes from Paul and Romans. You remember Paul, for 11 chapters, he's been trying to fix your hope on Christ. So he's been telling you who you are accurately. You're dead in your sin, but God did something. And we want to fix our hope on that, on what God has done. And once you really understand, once you really begin to get your arms around the holiness of God and the hope that we have and the promises that he's given, then that's going to drive your conduct today. This is what he says. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine? No, I'm convinced that neither death or life, angels, demons, the present or the future powers, height, depth, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Oh, the depths, he says in chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who can be his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? No, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And he ends at that point, and he's, he's trying his best as a writer to say, do you see the end? Do you see who God is from beginning to end? Do you have your focus on him? Now, if you do, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. You see what he's saying? I'm, I'm, same hinge that Peter uses in verse 13. Therefore, once you have your eyes fixed on the end, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. See, you have this. God, you have God's mercy in view. In view of that mercy. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. You see, Paul understands what Peter understands, and that is if you really have your Hope fixed on Christ is going to transfer, trans, transfer into holy conduct today. In fact, I would say whatever your hope is set on, it regulates your conduct today. And so we need to ask ourselves, what, what is it we've set our hope on? What, if, what is our fixed hope? I was reading in some leadership book from a basketball coach, and I don't re really remember who it was. But what he did was, before the season started, 
was a college basketball coach. He had, you know, the locker room and everybody's got their locker. And before the first wind sprint, before, before the first layup drill, before any practice had happened, he had all the guys coming to the locker room and each locker he had taped a picture of the Coliseum where the final four, the national championship was going to be played at, at the end of that season. You know why he was doing that? He was trying to fix their hope on the national championship. Guys, this is where we're going. And in order to get there, we've got to, we've got to produce day after day. But I want you to remember when you're doing the wind sprint, when you're, when you're so tired that, you know, you've got both hands on your knees and you're just trying not to get sick in front of everybody who's out there. When, when, when I blow the whistle for one more time, the reason you're going to be able to do that one more time is you have a fixed hope on the goal. And I want you to see that. I want you to touch it. I want you to feel it. That's what Paul's doing. That's what Peter's doing. He's trying to draw this picture that so crystal clear, the love and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ and the imperishable, the undefiled inheritance that's set aside for you and kept by God for you. Do you see it? Do you smell it? Do you, can you grab it? And if you can, if you have that as your fixed hope, then it's going to shape your conduct right now. So Peter, Paul are asking us, what is, what is our set? What is our fixed hope? See, when, it, when difficult times come in your life, when, when you feel like the storms happen in your life, when you feel like you're, you're so tired, you won't, you're going to get sick, you, you just can't do one more day. It's right at those particular times that your mind begins to wander to other things. You know that's true. When you just say, I just can't do one more day. I can't get up and face that one more time. It's right at that moment that your mind begins to say, well, is there something else out in the world that could help me right now? That's why we're doing what we're doing on Saturday about pornography, because that's one of the main avenues. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be food. It could be television. It can be sleep. It can be more work for more money. It can be a host of things. But it's right at that moment when you just say, I can't do one more time, that your mind begins to scatter and look for some other way to have hope, some other thing you can latch on to and Paul and Peter are saying, no, let's have our hope set fully on Jesus Christ. And so we want to ask ourselves again, what, what is your hope set on? Does, does Jesus have your full attention? See, it might be that you would say, for some of you might say, well, I'm sort of like a, a good investment advisor. You know, if you take your money to an investment advisor, a good investment advisor is going to say, what do you need to do with your money? You need to diversify, right? You don't want to put it all in one stock or all in one sector, because if you put it all in the, the energy sector or the technology sector or the health sector and it goes down, all your money goes down. So you need to take, you know, 25 percent of your money, put it here in 25. So you're, you have a diversified portfolio. So they're all going up and down. But, you know, if any one sector goes down, you're, you haven't lost all hope. And sometimes we do that with our own eternal hope. 
well, let's see, I've got my hope in Jesus. Yeah, I got that down. But, you know, I'm also hoping in health and and I'm also hoping in my job and I'm also hoping in my family. And I've got this diversified portfolio of hope. So just in case, if if Jesus doesn't come through, well, then, well, I've got some other hope out here. And some of us live our lives that way. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. All investment. I need all of your investment set on the one thing that is meant to save. That's Jesus Christ. There is no diversification of hope. It's only hope in this one thing. And so what is your hope set fully on? And I I can just imagine when Peter's saying this, he's writing this down and thinking, gosh, when did I learn this lesson? When did Peter learn this lesson? It's got to be all about Jesus. Well, probably many times, but at least one of them, the most, probably the one we're most familiar with. Peter and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up. They try to make it to the safety. They can't do it on their own. And at very last, they wake up Jesus, who's been asleep the whole time, and they say, well, don't you care about us? And what, you remember what Jesus does? He gets up, he calms the, the storm. And he stands up, peace, be still. And so everything's still. And what you can hear is just water dripping off of every man in the boat, including Jesus. And he turns to the disciples. And what does he say? Where is your faith? Where is your set hope? I was here the whole time. And see, when times got difficult, when you thought you couldn't make it back to the shore that you thought was going to bring you safety and you thought you were going to go down, where was your faith at that point? It's at that point you find out where your set hope is. And see, what happens is that so many times we can get back to some kind of shore and say, well, at least right here I'm safe. At least I've got my health. At least I've got my family. At least I've got my bank account. At least I've got... And you, you, you create this little island. But, folks, one day you're not going to be able to get back to shore. You understand that. And at that point, you need to figure out what's your set hope. It's got to be something that when you do go under is bigger than death itself. And that hope... Is Jesus Christ. And when that hope becomes your set hope today, then it really drives your conduct. Hope shapes holiness. Hope shapes our conduct. And Peter understands that. And we have to ask ourselves and try to answer, where is our our hope? Secondly, one way hope shapes our conduct is we live by a different pattern. You see this in Verse 14, let's look at it again together. As obedient children, do not be conformed. For some of your um, versions, it may be fashioned to the passions of your former ignorance. See, see this idea of fashion or conformity uh, to your passion, it's, it's, you're going to have a new pattern of life. You remember when uh, Moses is leading the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land. Moses says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You must not do as they did in Egypt where you used to live. 
See, you, you spent 400 years in slavery, in sin. And we're coming out of that. And now as we go into the promised land, you can't live by the same old pattern. It's going to be a new pattern needs to be set. A new, a new pattern needs to be cut. I don't know if they still do this, but I, can, I, I could remember when I was working on the sermon, this picture in my mind of my mother taking these sewing patterns. They do this? I don't know. You, I, I don't sew. So she would have these little sewing patterns. And I have three older sisters. And so she would be sewing for them at different points. And what she'd do is she'd have the, her sewing machine. But she, the first thing she'd do, she takes the, the material, the fabric. She rolls it out. She puts the pattern right out. She pins the pattern. And then what does she do? She cuts the pattern out and then sews up. And bingo, you have a dress. It's not that complicated. Well, actually, it is complicated. But you see, you have a pattern. There's a pattern and you're cutting along the lines of the pattern. And what Peter's saying is you have a pattern. Hear him say you have a pattern. You have an old hope. Everyone has a hope. Everyone has a pattern. You have one. It's time to get rid of it. It's time to take that pattern off the fabric of your lives and, and ball it up and throw it away and say, okay, God, I need a whole new pattern. It's not just taking one little piece of a pattern and saying, well, I'm sure God didn't like that, so we'll just cut that off and, you know, draw the line a little different. No, no, no. He's saying a whole new pattern. A whole new hope. You have a hope. You had a hope in something. It was formerly when you were ignorant and you didn't know about God. But now that you know the greatness of God, now that you know the riches of God, the riches here aren't nearly as attractive. You see, you have a whole new pattern where you're hoarding things. Now you're willing to give them away. Why? Because you have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and it's kept by God for you. So you're you're establishing yourself with a, a whole new pattern, the old has to be discarded. And I think, again, it's helpful to use Peter. This is why this is such a great book, because we have so many examples from the life of Peter that we're aware of. And I think it's helpful, especially when you're you're listening to Peter. It's sometimes think, well, he, Peter, he's got it all together. But we all thankfully we know Peter doesn't have it all together. And sometimes it's helpful in an odd way to, to understand that the pastor, the preacher is dealing with it himself, right? It's not something that he's, he's a finished product. But Peter understands this is something I'm dealing with. I have an old pattern that still needs to be worked out of my life. And you can remember one of Peter's prolific passions. One of his strongest patterns was fear. Especially the fear of man. And you, you most easily see it when Peter's standing by a campfire one night. And Jesus is on trial. And just a little girl comes up and says, hey, weren't you one of them? And he's afraid. Whether he's afraid of what this girl would think, whether he's afraid of what other people might hear, whether he's afraid for his life, whatever he's he's afraid of man here. And he disowns Jesus. But he doesn't just learn his lesson right there. It's a pattern that that takes time to fall away. And we know that because Peter had a confrontation of face to face. Imagine this with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is going back to the, 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 his home church, 
It's in a town called Antioch. That's where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from, and that's where they came back to. That's their home church. And at one point, Peter came up to Antioch. And what was happening there is Antioch was a very mixed church. There were lots of Jews in the church and lots of Gentiles in the church. And that was a new thing. If you're, if you're, you understand the New Testament, this huge shift had to take place that Jews and Gentiles now were seen as equal people. There's no difference between the two of them. And Peter seemed to make the shift as you read through chapter in the chapters in Acts. But then when you hear about this encounter, you realize he's still afraid. And so he's he's at the uh, the potluck dinner at the church in Antioch. And at the potluck, everybody's eating together. It doesn't matter which table you're at. But then some of the high and mighty types from Jerusalem who are Jews, they came in for one of the potlucks. And it was just a small group. And they got over here and sat by themselves because they didn't want to mix it up with the Gentiles. And Peter being afraid of these guys, he moved away from the Gentiles. And he started just eating potlucks with the Jewish guys. And then when he came, guess what? Lots of people followed after Peter. And so at the next potluck, we had all the Jews on one side and all the Gentiles on another. And Paul sees it happening and he comes and he confronts him face to face in front of everybody. And when he confronts Peter, why did you do this? Peter says, I was afraid. I was afraid of what other people might think. See, I have an old passion. I have an old hope. I have an old pattern that still, I, still as Peter said, it's got to be worked out of my life. It's, it doesn't just happen all at once. Do you hear that? It, it's over and over and over again, making these small steps in the right direction. It takes a lifetime, this pursuit of holiness. And I don't know what your old pattern is, what, what needs to be discarded. But maybe it has to do with fear. Fear drives a lot of us. Maybe you're afraid of what people might say or think. Because you're a high school student, you're a college student, and what people say is big. What God says is small. What people think big, what God thinks small. What people do is big, what God wants done small. You've got it totally upside down. So you're hearing from the world and you're just saying, I'm just so afraid to be different, to say something different, to walk away or to walk into certain situations because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my crowd. I'm afraid of these people. Maybe you're afraid because of of the future. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So you hold on to things today that maybe are hurting you. But you're afraid. If you let them go, what might happen? So often I've seen a single female. She gets afraid. Afraid no one's going to like her. Afraid she's getting too old. It shapes her conduct. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, this person who would never do that, never dress that way, never. But I, I, I become afraid. And it looks like everything's passing me by. So I, it shapes my conduct to dress a little differently, to offer myself in a little different pattern, 
to lower my standards just a little bit. Because I've got to get somebody who's going to jump over this bar. It's really afraid. It's really fear that's driving that. And so we want to ask ourselves, what's the old pattern? What's the passion that still needs to be cut away? Maybe it's fear. Third thing, we see a new pattern has to be established. Let me just mention this quickly. He says it in verse 22, you've got to purify yourselves by obedience to the truth. You've You've got to know the truth. And the truth really sets you free from from the lies and the half-truths. Remember the, the picture I've had the last couple of weeks? Um, and I sent you the little video for it in my letter. If you haven't gotten it, you know what I'm talking about if you've gotten it. And I know many of you, I can tell many of you clicked on and you watched a little episode. Did you not of the hoarders? And so these people are pack rats. And in order to get rid of these half-truths and lies and ignorance and things in our life, what we have to do is we have to replace it with the truth. And you have to have the truth lay over the tracks of your mind, truth that you've been, instead of the lies that you've been telling us or you've been telling yourself. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy. Christ loved the church and he's going to make the church holy by cleansing her through what? The washing of the word. We've got a church that's got a lot of impurities in it. How are we going to make this church clean? It's going to be the word of God. It's just got to keep washing out of this pulpit and over your lives. It's got to become washing out of the Bible and over your mind. You've got to replace the half-truths that you have in your mind about yourself, about your world, about your career, about your future with the truth of the Word of God. And so we want to have that replaced by the truth. Finally, I want to mention this as our last point. In terms of our our current pursuit of holiness... We understand that our our current conduct is shaped by what we have our hope on. We understand that we've got to have a new pattern. The new pattern is throwing some things out and replacing it with the truth of God. And one last point, verse 17. Our current pursuit of holiness has eternal value. Let's read verse 17 together. And if you call on him, God, as father... If you say God is your father, God, the father, judges impartially according to your deeds. So conduct yourselves with fear, fear of the Lord throughout your time of exile, meaning here on earth. God will impartially judge you and me according to your deeds. Let's just let that sink in. According to verse 17, Peter is saying, if you say God is your father, you will stand before him as his child. And you will be judged according to your deeds that you're doing today. Peter understands that that can affect your holiness today. 
In case this sounds strange, or maybe you're new to this whole idea, let me just confirm what Peter says with other texts in the Bible. That's always a helpful thing to do. Second Corinthians five. The Apostle Paul says this, for we must all appear for before the judgment seat of Christ. So each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus himself, Matthew 16, the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus says this in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon. My, my soon my reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. You remember in Luke 19, the parable that Jesus said of the talents, right? You remember this one man's given 10, one man's given five, one man's given one. At the end, the, the master comes back and says, what have you done with what I've given you? And the man with 10 says, you know, I multiplied it. Great, come in. You'll be a ruler of ten cities. The man with five, I've I've multiplied mine. Great, come in. You'll be the ruler of five cities. You're going to be rewarded for what you've done or haven't done. The man with one comes in and says, I buried mine. I didn't do anything with it. And he's judged. It's what Jesus is trying to say is that there is an eternal judgment And you will be judged by a loving father according to what you're doing right now. Now, now let me be clear. The judgment that Peter is referring to is not the judgment of condemnation. It's the judgment of evaluation. Big difference. How do I know it's not the judgment of condemnation? Well, good. Good question. Verse 18. Look what he says. Knowing. See, this is what you know after I've told you that you're going to stand before the judge, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That's the judgment of condemnation. And we can all be thankful that that has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Amen. But there is another judgment for everyone that's a judgment of evaluation. A father coming to his son and saying, I love you. I have paid for you. I have given you things. Now I'm going to evaluate what you've done with those things. That day is going to come for me. That day is going to come for you. And Peter is hoping, understanding that, that that day is Pressing in on you. It's coming on you like a freight train. Even if you feel like, hey, I'm only 15. It's coming. And you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, Paul, this is what I gave you. Let's see what you did with what I gave you. Let's see if you had a good investment strategy with your time and your talents. I don't know if you've seen this commercial uh, it's some kind of financial commercial, maybe uh, an investment kind of commercial. And uh, there, the, the two or three that I've seen, they're all the same. You have a young version of a guy. I think it's usually a guy. And then the one I can remember, he's standing at the hospital window. He's just, you know, his wife just been given birth. And there's a baby, you know, that's in there. And he's looking at the baby. And while he's looking at the baby, maybe the guy's 25 years old. An older version of himself comes up and has a conversation with him. Have you seen this commercial? So a 70-year-old man comes up and now is, now is talking to 
the younger version of himself. And he looks and says, wow, what a wonderful kid. And the guy, the young guy says, do I know you? Yes. Are you? Yes. And then the older man says, let's talk about your current investment strategy. Why? Because the older man knows. It matters right now, son, when you're 25, what you do when you're what's happening when you're 75. If that's the case over 50 years, what it's like, what is it like over 500,000 years? And I wonder if an older version of yourself, let's just say 100 years from now. A hundred year older version of yourself could come back and say, hey, let's examine your investment strategy right now. Let's evaluate what you're doing right now. Oh, because it's going to matter. It's not going to just matter this week or next week. It's going to balloon up and matter all across eternity. And my question for you, Peter's question for you. Let's evaluate your conduct right now. Because it matters for eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such.